0: You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 49. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hi there. I hope you're having a great week. You're most likely familiar with grape wines, and we have previously talked on this podcast about apple ciders and kombucha. But today, I'd like to explore with you a different direction in the world of Fermentation. Creation of a mead. My today's guest is Dan Clapp. Dan is an engineer by training, yet few years back he discovered a new passion that he is excited to share with the world. Today, together with his family, he owns sixteen thirty four Meadery in Ipswich, Massachusetts. This is where he manufactures a mead by fermenting honey and creating interesting combinations of flavors. Meat has not yet become as popular as other alcoholic beverages, but the world of meat making has rich history and exciting future. I'm a huge lover of honey, so anything that is honey-based automatically gets on my have to try this list. So by the end of this episode, you'll discover the rich history of meat making and will learn a lot more about fascinating world of honey fermentation enjoy. Dan, good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, I'm very excited to have you on this podcast and learn uh, a lot about mead and mead making. So welcome.
1: Thank uh, you very much. I'm, I'm happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Uh, so as we begin, tell us a little bit of uh, the story of how you got interested in mead.
1: Sure. So um it been about 15 years now uh, since I've been um, really discovered mead. I was on a genealogy trip to Denmark uh, researching uh, one side of my family. And um, on the way back from that trip, I picked up a bottle of mead um, as a souvenir gift. It was a, a clay bottle that had a, a Viking on the front of it. And I just thought it was a cool gift. Um, so I brought that back and um, actually ended up in my liquor cabinet um, for a, a while. Um, and we broke it out at a dinner party and um, opened it up, passed it around, and everyone was going, "What is this stuff? This stuff's pretty good and um, that piqued my interest in, in in really what this bottle of stuff that I picked up was and um, so I started researching meat and I saw that it was a fermented beverage and i'm a I was a home beer brewer uh passionate about brewing beer and like to ferment things and and make yogurt and uh, make bread and all that type of stuff. And uh, so when I saw it was fermented, I said, Oh, huh, I can probably make that. And I uh, uh, started making mead for the first time. And that was, uh, that's kind of the roots of how I got started. And I just got a passion for it as uh, time went on.
0: That, that's a very interesting story. So tell us what mead is. You said it's a fermented beverage. Can you be a little bit more specific?
1: Well, the, the real key difference is that uh, mead is fermented uh, with a sugar source of honey. So uh, instead of being uh, grape juice, as you would for standard uh, standard wine or um, for beer, it's malt extract, um, cider, it's apple cider. For mead, it's uh, the sugar source is all honey, or uh, majority of it is honey anyway. So um, your your basic recipe is honey, water, and then you throw yeast in into the mix, and the yeast is going to consume the sugar uh, in the honey and turn that into alcohol.
0: Very interesting. So I know that mead is making a comeback. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of this beverage? Where does it come from? Like, what's, what's the story?
1: so um at least from um uh, uh usually in in my tasting room when I ask people you know um, whether they know mead or not um, uh some people have had it at Renaissance fairs or um might have read it in uh, uh, uh an older book like such as Beowulf um or Chaucer's tale or some old uh, old English um uh version of some some early writing and we we seem to uh, have developed a uh, association of the vikings having uh, drunk mead um you know back to um you know 500 1000 AD and that's probably mostly from the the beowulf where uh in that in that great tale um, old English tale that's based in Scandinavia. Um, there's these meat halls that, uh, are, are part of the tale and, you know, really central to the story. And in that meat hall, they're always drinking mead. Well, it turns out that the Vikings really did drink mead and, um, they would go on, um, their pillaging, uh, conquests to, to the uh, east and to the west. And during those uh, trips, they would capture honey and bring back honey with them and ended up using the honey for um, making mead and using it as part of their celebrations.
0: This is very—yeah, um, go ahead.
1: So, so that's kind of the, how we know about it, but it turns out that really mead has been around for much, much longer than um, what we think it has. Um, the earliest known record that I've, uh, I've seen is in about 6800 uh, B.C., um, they actually have some uh, clay pots they found in an archaeology dig in China, and they tested the residual contents of the of the clay pots. You know, it was a dig, and they're doing the research. And sure enough, in the, in the bottom of the pots, there was some residual mead in the bottom of the pots. So that dates it to, you know, eight, over 8,000 years ago. Um, but it's pretty much been proven that any culture that has had mead, or I'm sorry, it has had honey, uh, would have made mead, so it's pretty easy to take some raw honey and start fermenting it. Because all you have to do is add some water to the honey, and it becomes a fermentable beverage. Um, so you just add add water to raw honey. It's got yeast in it, and uh, from from the bees collecting the nectar, they're going to pick up wild yeast, uh, and it's going to be in place in the honey. And all you have to do is add some water to it, and it's going to start fermenting.
0: It's really interesting that you are talking about honey, and just in general, uh, from everything we always know, is that honey has indefinite shelf life. And so um, it's fascinating for me to hear that it only takes... a Adding a little bit of water for it to start fermenting, and it makes perfect sense. But uh, this is just something for us to keep in mind. That on one hand, honey is something that can store uh, very well for a very long time. Yet, it is possible to convert it into something else. So the uh, yep, go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say that as part of that, the um, so it's about. Uh, you uh, many people heard the tale of the uh, finding. Uh, some researchers found some honey in the in the pyramids in Egypt. Uh, and somehow they determined that the honey was still good. It was over two thousand years old um, i don 't know really I know how they they determined whether it was good, whether they tasted it or not but uh but it turns out that you only need to add about um, three or four percent more water to honey to make it fermentable so um, honey is usually about seventeen or eighteen percent water when it comes out of the hive and uh, so you, all you have to do is um, add that little bit more water to it and and then you can accidentally make mead
0: very interesting so i know that uh, you are a beekeeper and so uh one of the or uh, a group of questions that i was thinking about uh had to do with uh your perspective on beekeeping in general and perhaps we can uh come back to it a little bit later but one thing that i wanted uh to ask you about um at this point is um how did you uh, become interested in working with honey other than mead making?
1: Um, well, I've always been a, a fan of, of honey uh, uh, and uh, always tried to support some local beekeepers um, around Ipswich in the North shore area. So, you know, he's buying local honey and honey, what, what you can't get any more natural than honey, of course. So trying to use that for a, a sugar substitute, you know, um, and getting it as natural as possible. Um, but, um, and, and, but I didn't really start beekeeping until, uh, fairly recently. I, um, uh, I, I knew about beekeeping. I helped, um, friends uh, take care of their hives, and um, actually when I was a, a, a teenager, I, I helped take care of some bees as well. So I would always had that interest in it, but never really um, took it on as a hobby um, until recently. Um, and um, as part of the um, uh, honey source for my meadery, I always wanted thought it would be fun to actually get to the point where I could supply uh, at least enough honey to make a, a batch of my own own honey mead. And, um, that part of that, what spurred me on is one of my local mentors, um, here in Ipswich retired as a beekeeper and, and stopped supplying me honey. And, and that kind of spurred me on, uh, to, to, uh, get more, you know, get more involved in it and actually learn about it. So he's been, he's been, uh, uh teaching me about, um, how to take care of the bees and, and, uh, I'm, I'm learning, learning as I go along.
0: That's awesome. So, um, uh- but at this point, I'm assuming that you are not uh, at the place where you can utilize just your own honey for uh, making the mead that you produce, right?
1: That, that's correct. That's correct. I need uh, I need lots of honey to make mead. You need about um, roughly one third um, of uh, a bottle of mead would be uh, made of uh, made with honey. And the rest would be the water, um, so uh, for a typical batch, um, I need about four hundred pounds of honey um, that's about uh, three hundred and fifty thousand bees worth of honey, if you can imagine that um, so uh that's you know roughly eight to ten hives uh, worth of honey per batch and so over the course of a year, I uh, use upward of about six thousand pounds of honey uh, for my production levels so uh, so I'm at the point where I need uh, you know, uh, almost hundreds of hives. Uh, I do need hundreds of hives to, um, supply the honey that I need for making the mead that I'm selling right now. So, um, so I'm a little ways off from uh, being able to supply the meadery, uh, with, with honey. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm at three and a half hives right now. (laughs) So, um, Okay. I do uh, sell my honey. I make the honey. Or I, I produce, get the honey produced. And I sell jars of the honey in the in the meadery as a, you know my own honey.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, the the math is absolutely amazing. Just when you're thinking, and um, uh, I'm going to bring you back to actually the meadery that you run. Um, but before we do this, I wanted to ask you uh, one additional question about the mead itself. So, how does it compare to other alcoholic beverages?
1: So um, the great, one of the things I find great about mead is how versatile it can be. So the, the majority of mead is made more in a, a, towards a wine style in that the alcohol content is usually um, wine alcohol levels or higher. Um, so most of the stuff I make is in that 13 to 15% alcohol range. And every once in a while, I'll make one up a little bit higher than that. Um, a lot of the meads, uh, in Europe, uh, tend to be up, uh, 18 to 24%. Um, so you get to be more of an after dinner aperitif, uh, type of style, uh, in a lot, of, lots of parts of the world. Um, but this is just kind of a, a, a small sampling of what you can really do with it. And that's what makes it so fun to make. Um, we I know of several meaderies in the United States that are making beer style meads, uh, where it's a, a lighter mead. Um, they're actually canning the stuff and making it sparkling, uh, that type of thing. So you can change your honey to water ratio and uh, target various alcohol ranges. Um, so if you just you know add less honey, uh, then you won't have as much source of sugar. Uh, for making the alcohol, and uh, you can make a lighter style mead and If you increase your alcohol uh, by adding more honey and choosing a yeast that can ferment up to the higher alcohol contents, you can make it more much more robust. Um, so uh, if you look at the segment of in the United States, mead has never really been very popular there's only over the last thirty years ago. There's only thirty years or so there's only a couple major sources of of of, of meat made in the united States a couple of national brands and uh, that has changed dramatically over the last um uh, six six to eight years or so where it's increased from about uh 50 or 60 known meat producers in the United States to over 380 producers so it's a, a quickly growing segment and that what that allows is um uh a lot of styles to be produced and that's you know that's where these uh, the fun of uh, fun of the different uh, types of meat that are being produced
0: that is really fascinating. So um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is just how much honey it takes for you to to have the meat production. But what I also know is that you're a very small operation. And so can you talk to us a little bit about uh, 1634 Meadery? Um, what What are you guys like? Um, when did you actually open your doors? You're in I- Ipswich. So can you also tell us a little bit why 1634?
1: Sure. So, um, so, uh, basically the way we, um, came about making mead was, um, uh, after, after 10 years or so of making mead in my basement and, uh, filling up my basement with carboys and buckets, you know, people started saying, Hey, this stuff's pretty good. You're making some, making some pretty good stuff. You got to try and sell this and, uh, kind of jokingly. And, um, I'd always have parties and I'd bring out my latest mead. and I kind of started having like tasting tests where, uh, um, you know, which, which, which of my meads are the better and stuff like that. And, um, and, and finally got to the point where, well, maybe I, maybe I should consider opening up a meadery. Why not? Um, I saw, I started monitoring nationwide trends. Like I said, I saw some of the, uh, some success of, um uh, there's a metery, uh, a uh, moonlight meadery up in, uh, Londonderry, New Hampshire, that makes pretty good stuff. And I saw him having some success. And I saw some other uh, meadries nationwide having some success, and um, then started doing the research and volunteering at wineries and learning learning about production of of uh, wine and um, and mead a little bit more, and um, uh, decided after some research that yes, this maybe maybe this was a good idea, um, and we um, in 2015 uh, three and a half years ago or so. Actually, it was really about four years ago where we really uh, first rented our spot. But I was driving through Ipswich, and I said, well, if I'm really serious about opening up a meadery, I really need to find out how much it would cost to rent a space um, to to produce and sell the mead. Um, And one of the things I really decided early on was I needed to have a tasting room um, because you really need to educate the consumer uh, about me there were just not that many people know about me either, or or especially you know 3 4 years ago uh, it wasn't on the horizon as a, as as a, a, an available product uh, for most people and so i i wanted to have a tasting room so i happened to be driving through Ipswich and drove by and saw this big rental for rent sign on this building in Ipswich on 3 Short Street and it was the first place I went and looked at, walked into it, you know, called up the realtor and walked in there. And, um, it was a, uh, uh, basically it was an old uh, auto place. It had a two car garage and a little office area. And I walked in there and immediately said, "Oh, this, this actually is the right size. I was thinking of maybe starting it out of my garage at home, but I uh, wanted to have that tasting room. So I saw this place and it had a, a nice size for a small tasting room and a nice size for a, a small production area and um, it was for rent and we had to make a decision of course, because it was for rent uh, and didn't know how long it would be available. And um, so with my wife's encouragement, she uh, wanting to get me out of the house because I was filling up the house with carboys and buckets. <laughs> uh, and she, uh, she, she, uh, she was tired of me messing up the, uh, messing up the kitchen, uh, bottling uh, mead and stuff like that. And, but no, but she re- was really supportive and, and thought, said, you know, if you don't do this now, you're never going to do it. You're, you you know, you're uh, getting uh, uh, to the point in your life where if you want a second career, you better do it now. And so um, with her encouragement, we, we decided to you know, jump off, the cliff, so to speak, and, uh, um, go ahead and open the meatery. Um, uh, and, uh, along, we rented the place. We started going through the whole permitting process, um, uh, getting the, all the, the, uh, local approvals, the federal approvals, the state level approvals. It was quite the process, uh, and educating everybody along the way about what meat is, um, because nobody really knew. Um so we opened uh about nine months after we uh, rented the place um uh, making the mead. Um and uh we opened in April of twenty fifteen. Um uh and it was uh well advertised. We got on the front page of the local paper and uh we really really hadn't looked back since we opened the meadery.
0: That's fabulous. So why sixteen thirty
1: four? So sixteen thirty four um came about um as, you know, Anyone who's ever thought about opening a, uh, their own company, you have to come up with a, a name, right? So uh, we we would uh, make lists of possible names and um, wanted to keep it as you know something local as possible. We we, we wanted something historic, if possible. Um, and one of the you know uh, names we came you know we were considering was just the Ipswich Metering. And, um, we didn't really like the ring of that. There's, um, uh, in Ipswich brewery, uh, in town and we didn't really want to compete with them or we didn't want to conflict with their name. And my, one of my neighbors actually came up with, well, why don't you make it 1634, which happens to be the year that, um, Ipswich was incorporated. So it became a town, you know, uh, was given a, a, a grant by the the uh, governor of the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1634 and uh so it has and and immediately uh I like that because it had that historic more historic ring, ring to it it kind of matched uh where our bottle design was going which is a an old look and feel to it and um our labels we wanted to have kind of a pocket theory look and as soon as he he mentioned that it kind of like went to the top of the list of possible names and and it stuck stuck from the get go.
0: That's fabulous. Um, so, how many different meads do you actually make? Do you produce?
1: So, uh, in the three and a half years we've been open, we've made um, over twenty-one different flavors. So we uh, we make. Uh, uh, small batch stuff. And, um, we try to, uh, really concentrate on local ingredients. And one of the, one of the styles that we kind of concentrate on are, our uh, fruit meads. Um, and so if you go down the list of all the meads we make, you'll, you'll find many New England fruits, uh, associated with a lot of the meads, uh, blueberry, raspberry, strawberry, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, uh, as long as our basic, um, uh, local honey needs that are just the honey by themselves. Um, so we, we, we like to always keep something new in the tasting room and always have something new on the horizon, um, to, to make it interesting to come into the meadery.
0: That, that's awesome. So, um, can you talk a little bit about, uh, when you are saying that you're using, uh, local berries and local fruits, um, um, can you talk to us a little bit about dry versus sweet like w- what what does actually some of your meats taste like
1: so um, so I think one of the things that differentiates me from um, uh, a lot of the traditional mead or uh, other meaderies that are out there is that we tend to make uh, dry meads as well as some sweeter ones. And, and that, um, uh, if you, if a lot of people who come into the meadery, um, only have ever had mead that was very sweet, meaning that there's residual, a lot of residual honey in left over in the mead. And that means that during the fermentation process, um, the uh, yeast did not consume all the honey that was, uh, you know, introduced in the uh, original mixture, and uh, so when the yeast uh, die off or are filtered off, it leaves um, a lot of honey, and it makes it for a sweeter drink. And, uh, but you don't have to make it sweet and, and trying to convince people that have had their only experience with super, um, sweet mead, uh, and showing them that you don't have to make it sweet. You can actually take uh, ferment in a style where, uh, you choose a yeast appropriately and choose a honey to water ratio, uh, appropriately so that the yeast will consume all the sugar and make it a dry mead. So you can compare this to a, you know, grape wine where you get a a drier style or, um, just lack of sugar is really what dry is. So, um, so you can ferment the mead in a style the same way you would a grape wine, um, and make it dry. And then in addition to that, you can, uh, you know, when you're, when we add the fruit, um, your choice of fruits and when you add the fruit can also be important on the different, um, flavoring characteristics you get for the final Mead, we uh, a fruit mead style is called uh, called called a mellow mel. That's an old term for uh, when you ferment the fruit with the uh, with the honey. Mm-hmm. And so we what we do is we take whole locally sourced fruit, and um, after we start the ferment with the honey, uh, we make sure that the there's a good strong fermentation going. The yeast are really picking up uh, and, and have taken over the the ferment, and then we add in the fruit which is all locally sourced, and we throw that right into the mead, uh, into the must as it's fermenting. And um, that's going to contribute the flavor and a small amount of sugar, only about 5% of the, the sugar source in the overall fermentation is from the fruit itself. Um, but um, But it's going to add the flavors of the fruit. Um, And, uh, you know, um, we don't use any purees or juices. It's all the whole fruits or the whole hulls of the fruit and and the seeds and all is going to kind of contribute to the flavor profile. Uh, And that's just uh, kind of how we want to do it as naturally as possible and as locally sourced as possible. Um, And uh, we just think it makes a a, a more interesting and more flavorful mead if we do it in that style.
0: That's great. So it almost sounds like it's a process of a second or double fermentation, right?
1: it well you, there there's two methods for that uh which it, uh, it, like you said one 's called usually is called you add the fruit the primary fermenter or you add the fruit in in the secondary fermenter. Mm-hmm. we kind of do it more towards the front mm-hmm. uh, and the main reason from my point of view for doing that is uh timing um we have uh, if you've ever been to our meter or ever come to our meter you 'll notice that we stuff a lot into a very small space we have about uh um, less than, um, uh, 600 square feet of space that we actually make the meat in our production mm-hmm. area. And, um, so we don't have a lot of room for big containers that we can, uh, add fruit to and let it sit for a long period of time. So it's better for us to uh, do the fruit addition in the primary fermenter and do it up front closer and do it, the fermentation of the fruit while the honey's fermenting. Uh, and that reduces our time in the, in the fermentation tank. Um, so we usually ferment the fruit for about four to five weeks mm-hmm. uh, along with the honey. So the, the time in the main tank and the big fermenta- fermentation tanks, uh, about four to five weeks. If we were to do it in the secondary stage, what we would do is we would pump into another vat and then add the fruit, and then we'd have to wait for the fermentation to complete Uh, from the sugar source of the, uh, being the fruit. And that would extend our time in that secondary tank, uh, you know, up another four to five weeks. And uh, we just have room for it. So (laughs) so it's better for us, uh, better for us to do it in the primary fermenter. And then what we do is we move the mead up, that primary ferments done into what we call the aging tank. And we leave all the uh, fruit uh, leaves behind and, um, and, uh, that it goes into the composting stream. Uh, but all that flavor and the color of the firm uh, of the fruit has been extracted out at that point. And then we just age the mead and it's already been flavored with the fruit that we, uh, we add
0: fascinating. So, so one thing that I wanted uh, to find out is how do you actually come up with the recipes for your mead? And I specifically, I wanted to ask you to share the story of your Jason's blunder, maybe some of the other ones.
1: (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah. So um, uh, naming meads is is sometimes a challenge, um, especially when you get a a bunch in a row. So uh, initially we had some fairly straightforward uh, names, uh, raspberry delight, uh, blueberry dreams, uh, you know, just kind of listing, you know, some of the the fruit needs we had. Uh, And then we really decided we wanted to have some more um, historical bends to some of our, our, uh, our flavors uh, tying in um, either local uh, stories, or um, it turns out that I actually, um, when I moved to Ipswich, I found out that I had a lot of family roots in the area um, uh, dating back to the 1600s, 1630s, actually in Ipswich here and surrounding towns. And so that lent itself to uh, being able to uh, incorporate Local tales into um, some of our labeling and our names. So, um, so for instance, we have a mead called Bewitched, um, and uh, that of course, that uh, with Bewitched being spelled B-E-E, um, mm-hmm. so tying in the and, and the B, uh, and that actually has a story of uh, on the back label of um, a relative of mine, Elizabeth Howe. She's a, my great ex-generation gram- grandmother, who was one of the 19 original um, accused witches that were hung during the Salem witch trials. Wow. Um, so we actually tell the story about how um, Elizabeth, who actually lived in uh, Ipswich, believe it or not, and um, she was accused, and um, uh, it's well documented how she was accused of uh, of making her her neighbor's pigs fly and making her cows, the cows, neighbors, cows sick. And, uh, she was uh, thrown in jail and, uh, and, and along with all the other, uh, unfortunate souls during that time period. Um, so that tale is on the back of our, one of our labels. Um, you had mentioned Jason's blunder. That's a little bit more, a contemporary tale. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason, Jason's blunder is a, uh, uh, a multi fruit mead. It's a it's a cranberry, strawberry, raspberry mead, uh, and that uh, came about by I had uh, an a intern working for me from Salem State, um, Jason Williams, and, um, and he he was working the meadery part time, and I, I was I would give him tasks to do, and uh, one of the tasks I gave him one day was to take two barrels of strawberry mead and prepare it to be filtered. Mm-hmm. and uh, said, take these two barrels and basically pump them into this tank, and we're going to filter them later today. I ran off to do some errands and you know let him work on his task list, and I came back uh, a couple hours later and said, hey, how's it going, Jason? And he goes, yeah, I'm almost done. Uh, I, and uh, I'm looking at his setup and um, followed the hose, and instead of being in the strawberry mead, it was in the cranberry mead.
0: Mm. So he
1: actually mixed together the strawberry and cranberry barrels. And, um, uh, I didn't, I, I kind of wasn't too happy about it, but I wasn't really too concerned about it. And, um, we ended up after him being very embarrassed by it, uh, adding some uh, raspberry to it, and coming up with a new mead that we called Jason's Blunder, and uh, he, we made, we forced him to write the uh, the label on the back <laughs> side of it, tell, telling the tale of how he he screwed up and, and ended up making this uh, mead, which actually turned out to be uh, a very popular mead. That we have actually recreated a second time, so it's uh, high on the list of uh, favorite meads.
0: <laughs> I love this story, and I love the fact that a lot of our best creation and inventions we come up uh, with them because we make errors, and so we discover something really new and something really fabulous. So thank you for that.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and um, I, I I wouldn't want to do it regularly, but uh, but certainly in this case it was a uh, we we say a, a, an error gone right.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> so. awesome. So. So um, earlier in our conversation, you talked about Vikings and their travels. And um, what came to my mind is the fact that um, a lot of things, a lot of fermented beverages that they drank um, were there because the water was not very pure. And so the fermentation uh, really killed a lot of pathogens. And so I wanted to kind of to follow up on that and ask you uh, a question of, what is mead good for like when when I am reading uh about uh meads right now on the internet, there is a little bit about uh you know the antibiotic resistance and pathogens that uh carry this uh resistance that meat can help fighting uh, with that. Anything else that you're aware of or familiar with
1: um well uh yeah you're you're right that uh um, so around the viking time uh you know um, when Vikings were actually uh, going around and, and um invading other lands uh mead was actually popular uh in europe um, in Russia as well and um in the u k um, and some of our earliest recipes come from um the during um the medieval times when monks were, would actually were the first to write down some of the recipes. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, and they would, um, make the mead as part of, um, they, they would take care of beehives and they needed the be wax for their, um, uh, for their candles. So they would make mead kind of as a, as a side, side business, if you will. And a lot of times they'd pay taxes mm-hmm. at Mm-hmm. turns out with mead, but, um, but during that time period, uh, uh mead w- was as popular as some of these other beverages, such as, um, you know, beer and cider and stuff like that. And, um, some of the early, one of the earliest terms for mead is, is, uh, comes from a Welsh term methylated gin, um, which is a now a term for spiced mead. Mm-hmm. And, but that actual original term, um, uh it means medicinal uh medicinal mead uh and that was um uh, a lot of times uh people would drink mead as and it, and it would provide health benefits and, um, it's not really, uh, written down as such, but, it, you know, over the years, it, it just, it was, it was known that mead, uh, w- was a lot of times served, um, um, to help cure ales. And, um, uh, so that, that, that's part of the, certainly part of the tale of, of mead and, and, and why it was, um, popular to be used and it was used, uh, as, as, as a medicine.
0: Very interesting. Thank you so much. And so the, the well, other, yep, go ahead.
1: I, well, I was going to say more more contemporary. There, uh, I know of a um, Scandinavian, I think it was in Norway, there was a recent study where they were trying to actually um, prove some of the beneficial aspects of meat. And I think there was, uh antibacterial uh, properties Um uh, that you mentioned, and they actually did a study where they actually were able to to, to prove that uh, um, uh, honey in, in mead does not lose uh, those characteristics as long as you don't go through the process of uh, heating or boiling the um, the mead base when you're making the mead. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still carries through uh, in, in the in the product as long as you leave some of that residual honey and the nat- all natural product in there.
0: That's, that's really fascinating because honey by itself is just this amazing, uh, substance that has so many different beneficial effects. And so, um, that, that's really awesome to hear. Um, the other, Piece that I also like, I kept thinking when you were, were describing me, is the fact that it's created uh, through a fermentation process, and so we know a lot more, we are uh, much more aware of the importance of microbiome and our gut flora um, on our health and our well-being. And so um, uh, this is, uh, in my mind, this is also a connection uh, between the importance and the beneficial effects of mead uh, on your body. So just the fermentation itself.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, um, so it's more anecdotal that, uh, at this point, you know, there's, there, there hasn't been a lot of, uh, of, uh, published studies, so to speak, uh, that type of thing. Um, it, it just because there's, there, it, it never been a very popular drink, mm-hmm. um, you know, at least in America. And, um, but I think what you're seeing now is that more people, and, and this also ties into the whole beekeeping and the, and the, um, uh, what's known as colony collapse disorder and people uh, paying a little bit more attention to the uh, health of the bees uh, where uh, people learning that, you know, the bees are dying off and whatnot. But what this is kind of generated is a little uh, mini culture of people taking care of bees and, uh, and, and with that becoming more interested in mead and mead making. And the other uh, interesting thing was that really up until recently uh, a lot of times the, some of the older recipes included um, boiling the uh, uh, the mead, uh, and early on, uh, back in the day, you used to make it by mixing the honey and water together, and you you boil it and add your add your spices and fruits, and make and you had to boil it to kill everything in there to make sure you got a healthy ferment. And that really has changed over the last 20 years, um, where now pr- primarily mead is just made by Mixing honey and water together and pitching in a nice healthy dose of uh, a known yeast and doing a, as much a natural ferment as possible. And uh, so most of the time when you buy mead nowadays, there hasn't been any heating to it and, and uh, the, the product is as, as natural as, as possible
0: very interesting thank you so you uh, brought up the uh, idea of health of bees can you really talk a little bit uh, more about this why this is so important uh, for us as a society why are bees so important for us
1: well obviously um, the the big worry that has come about on on um, you know in recent years is that um, we we rely now on the honeybees um, fairly extensively to do pollination on uh, large crops so a lot of bees now are, are are hauled around to fields and orchards and whatnot that are producing a crop and when that crop is in bloom the uh, bees will be brought in to uh, help pollinate the crops and um, in in uh, last 10 years or so there's been these cases where there's been huge Population die-off of the bees, and where some of the major producers and, and crop pollinators, the, the, the companies that do that, have had large die-offs uh, on, on the bees, and this um, uh, this became known as colony collapse disorder, where there was mysterious um, loss of, of hives uh for really unknown reasons um, and over the last five years ago there's been a lot of research uh, a lot more funding going into research of this uh, effect and what's what is exactly going on uh, with the bees why are, why are, why is this happening And some of the major reasons that have been really been isolated um, are include um, new uh, species of mites that are attacking the bees. Um, There's uh, definitely a relationship uh, between pesticides that are being used and certain classes of pesticides that are being used that are affecting the uh, bees. Maybe their immune systems and causing them um, to not be uh, immune to diseases. Uh, And uh, using And so there's, uh, and also some genetic, um, uh, Inbreeding if you will of the bees a lot of the sources for the bees a lot of um, uh, the breeding of the queens that are used uh, were coming from the same sources and they weren't getting uh, bred properly and they weren't being intermixed so that's just a few of the possible reasons why um, you know, contributing to weak weak hives and making them more susceptible to to die off um, the good news uh, from all this uh, publicity that came about is that it has really spurred a lot of uh, knowledge of the bees and how important they are for um, uh, uh, pollination of our food sources. And it has spurred uh, a huge uh, growth in backyard beekeeping. Uh, even in the three years that I have, uh, three and a half years I've opened the meadery, I've seen many, many people come into the meadery recently starting uh, their own hives and um, you know, you, you know, even if it's a couple hives, and this has led to an overall growth in actual the number of beehives that are uh, uh, being kept in the United States, um, and uh, and, uh, and and it's just become a, a good education source for um, uh, you know where, where where the state of the bees and how important they are into into our uh, society.
0: Thank you thank you so much for that. That is uh so important uh, for us to to just be aware of the situation and really understand what 's going on um i um uh, explored maybe a year or a year and, and a half ago, a mushroom company that was feeding um, specific mushroom elixir to their, uh, into their beehives, once again, to boost uh, the bees immune system and uh, to, to fight the colony collapse disorder. So I, I agree with you that there is much more awareness and that that's an important step to solving a problem. Um, Yep. Go ahead.
1: Well, I was just going to say, yeah. So yeah. And, um the um one of the one of the things at least in new england is that um we lose a lot of our hives from weather so um bees are actually aren't native to north america and um, they were brought over um in the early uh actually 1630s and 1640s uh, there was actually a one apiary up in um uh Newbury Massachusetts which is a couple of towns north of Ipswich here and uh they so they knew uh, uh they would bring the bees over it was a great source of uh a, a sweetener a natural sweetener uh so it was very you know wh- you know popular and honey was or actually sugar was very hard to come by uh, back in the day, so uh, they would use the honey as a you know, sweetener. So, honeybees were brought over and introduced, and uh, they actually beat the migration of Europeans across the continent. Um, as the hives, you know, the hives swarmed and would flow, uh, spread out. Uh, just kind of a, a little cool little tale from uh, local local history here.
0: <laughs> Very interesting. Thank you uh so uh Dan um I wanted to ask you if um you were to give an advice to yourself, maybe like ten or fifteen years ago, or someone who would like to uh try mead making, what would you recommend other resources other are other are classes, other teachers, other people that are actually teaching how to do this
1: uh absolutely um of course, the uh, internet um, is the, the best source for information nowadays. Um, uh, and, um, there's, there's more and more actually, uh, brew play, uh, brew houses. Um, that's the you know, homebrew stores that are giving classes on making mead. Um, but, uh, certainly the internet is a great source. And actually we, we did a video, uh, with ask this old house, uh, associated with the, the program on PBS, uh, on how to make mead. Um, and actually if you go and search, uh, YouTube and type in mead as, uh, your search on YouTube, you, uh, one of the first videos that will pop up is, uh, uh, the video we did on, uh, making your own gallon jug of mead. Um, but so you can go start there. Um, and your, my basic advice is, um, uh, the two key ingredients to making a good meat is, one is making sure temperature is controlled properly, and the other thing is to add some nutrients into uh, into, the, in, into your fermentation. So um, it turns out that honey is not a um, nut- real nutritious source of food for the yeast. Uh, the yeast are um, uh, really looking for nitrogen and other some other vitamins and minerals they need to do a healthy ferment, And a lot of times um, it's thought that early meat makers would add the fruits and spices into the honey uh, during the ferment to actually add nutrients and make a good uh, make, end up making a better mead. Um, so, what my recommendation, especially if you're making just a straight up mead with just honey, is that you add some nutrients in there to make sure you get a good ferment. So, temperature control is important. Keeping it uh, uh, in the in the 60s is usually a good target temperature, and adding some nutrients or fruits or spices into your batch to uh, make sure that the yeasts are happy and healthy. Uh, and uh, you have a pretty good chance if you do those two things to make a a good meeting.
0: Thank you. That's a great advice. And I will also find that YouTube video that you mentioned, and I'm also going to include it in the show notes. So, Dan, as we're coming to an end of this interview, I have two more questions for you. So one of them is, uh, I know you uh, sell your mead on farmers markets, but so if someone is here local who is listening and uh, listening to this, I would love you uh, to, to talk a little bit about like where exactly they can find you. Um, and just in general, uh, where People can find you in terms of like your Internet home or uh, where you are in Ipswich, where your store is. And then I want to ask you to leave our audience with maybe um, one uh, pearl of wisdom.
1: Uh, Sure. Um, So um, we are, you know, we're located on the north end of Ipswich. You can um, uh, you can get there by train or, or by car. Uh, you can ride the train and dip, switch and then walk uh, five or six blocks up to our, our metery. Um, we have a little tasting room um, where we give this the, 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 a flight of samples, and then you can wander in uh, and get a tour. We uh, will show you how the mead's made. So, if you have any, any interest of ever making mead, I would recommend and coming get, getting our tour. It's not a real long tour. We we, have, we only have a, a two car garage, but we we show you how to uh, we make the mead and uh, give you hints if you want to make it yourself. We let you wax a bottle and cork a bottle in in the uh, in the in the tasting room or I'm sorry, in the production area, uh, and uh, give you an overview of uh, our whole production process. Uh, Try to educate uh, people on bees and and, uh, as well and uh, on the different uh, sources of honey that we use. Um, And then uh, we also are distributed um, uh, via liquor stores. We're in about 50 liquor stores scattered uh, um, mostly North Shore and around the Boston area. We're starting to spread out. Uh, you can find a list of our, our uh, distribution on our website, 1634meadry.com. Um, and then we also, on our website, we also uh, list all the farmer's markets that we're doing. We're uh, we're uh, uh, we're um, at Kendall Center Farmer's Market. We're at Union Square. We're uh, at SOA in South Boston. Um, and also Newburyport. Uh, we've been in Belmont. i um, uh, been at Cape Ann. Uh, in Lexington as well. So uh I would recommend looking on our website we kind of try and keep up to date on where we get distributed and, uh, and where and where you can get us. Um, um, can I can uh, I ask you
0: one more thing about that? So are you guys also sure. on social media?
1: Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're on uh, Instagram, Facebook, uh and Twitter and okay, all, uh, so thank the you. The, 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 ma- the major ones uh and 1634 Metery is our 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 uh, hashtag and whatnot so um so yeah so we're we try to we try to stay update my my wife who is our our social media guru mm-hmm. does a great job of posting uh when when we're at events uh when we release new needs and that type of thing and and my daughter actually makes a bunch of uh um uh videos she's a my 14 year old daughter knows what she wants to do uh, uh for a living she wants to make animations and videos so we always are, are posting short little video Clips, uh, some of them pretty funny, um, on uh, uh, relating to the needs. Um, so we, we we try to stay up on the social media end of things.
0: That's awesome. I'll definitely include so, all your profiles.
1: So uh, and so maybe I'll finish up with one more tale about one of our needs. Um, Absolutely. Uh, which which is a pretty uh, positive. Uh, or we we get a lot of interest in w- one of our needs. It's a it's a multi berry need uh, called Devil's Footprint, and. Um, uh we have a, a tale here in Ipswich. Um, there's a, a church that's up on top of the hill. It's the first church of Ipswich. And there was a traveling preacher, George Whitefield, who was going through um, New England. And he was giving, stopping at towns, giving sermons uh, against the devil. Uh, and he happened to be giving a sermon. This was in 1740. He was giving a sermon at the top of the hill at the first church. And hundreds of people were gathered around, uh, listening to, to his, his talk. And I guess what happened is the devil heard about this and didn't like what was being said about him. He actually showed up at the sermon. And uh, a wrestling match ensued where the the preacher, uh, George Whitefield, and the devil were wrestling each other. They chased each other around the pews a few times, and uh, the fight eventually worked its way up the steeple of the church. And finally, uh, the preacher uh reverend uh whitefield knocked the devil off the top of the steeple and uh when the uh devil landed on the rocks uh at the at the base of the church his feet hit the ground and a bunch of sparks flew up and he left his footprints uh embedded in the rocks and uh hence the devil's footprints and uh you can actually take a walk after you visit the meadery; you can walk up to the church and uh and find the devil's footprints embedded in the in the rocks below <laughs>
0: That is such an awesome story. And this is blackberries, raspberries, and blueberries, right? That are mixed together. Uh, That's
1: correct. That's correct. It's one of our drier meads. It has a little bit of a a red wine feel from the tannins, from the different berries that we put in there. Uh, And it's always a popular mead. Uh, partly because of the name and the tale that goes with it, but also it's a it's a mighty fine meat, I think.
0: <laughs> that that's fabulous, Dan. Thank you so much. This was so fascinating. I am really inspired, and I so appreciate your time and your expertise.
1: Well, th- well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me on, and it's uh, always fun to share. Uh, my knowledge of mead and, uh, and mead making and, and all the, the uh, experiences that I've had thus far as as a mead maker. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with Dan Clapp. You can find all the links mentioned in today's episode in the show notes at com slash 49. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcasts. This is truly the best way to help others to discover the Wellness Insider Network. This episode was brought to you by 1634 metery 1634 Meadery has been improvising with a variety of tastes and flavors, and their mead is absolutely one of a kind. If you are interested in giving it a try, head over to their website and order one of their 10 beautiful honey wines. The tastes and flavors will truly surprise you. If you enter a code SAFE-LANA10, You will save 10% on your purchase through January 31st of 2019. Thanks again for being here. I appreciate you. Be smart. Be healthy. Be you.